Okay, here we go. I can hear myself. We're good. Thank you again, uh, worship team, this morning. Just thank you again for reaching. I know my heart personally this morning. All apprehension. (laughs) Say, good morning. My name is Jason Cabra. I'm an elder here at Grace Chapel, and I'll be delivering the message this morning. I just want to once again kind of recap what Jason had said early during the announcements, and thank you again for all the people that volunteered, whether it be serving food, whether it be acting as coaches, working with uh, cleaning up, preparations beforehand. We had four Saturdays in a row with children that received the gospel in the last four weeks. So important that one for kids in the community, kids here at Grace Chapel, my own children, and I cannot say thank you again to all those that participated and helped. It's once again uh, just shows the servant's heart by the people here at this church. And it wasn't for us. It wasn't for our glory. It wasn't for me. It was to serve with the emphasis on the importance of God and who Jesus Christ is and what he has provided to those that believe in him. It was a great opportunity for kids to have fun, run around, remove some of that excess energy out of their systems. Uh, I know as an adult in this room, I wish I had a a fraction of their energy. I'd just take like 2% out of my kids and call it good, right? Be good for the next week. Um, But we never know what that impact is going to have on these children. You know, I don't remember the statistic, but there's always states that there's so many times that somebody has to receive the word, hear the word, before they believe the word. Each one of those exposures through kindness shown by somebody and who they are individually. A connection, the interest in time, preparations, and a little bit of sweat. I didn't run around, right? No sports here, so. (laughs) But to those that did, thank you again and thanks be to God and all glory given to him. So this morning I'm going to continue in 1 Peter, the epistle. Uh, if you're kind of seeing the string of things, I really like expository preaching, so this is kind of what I can replicate. So, you know, this morning uh, we'll be going into chapter 2, but I just want to kind of recap uh, in First Peter chapter 1. In verses 1 and through 13, it talks about a heavenly inheritance, an inheritance provided by God the Father. It is the righteous recognition of the originator of this gift of mercy and grace, as benevolently provided by him. An inheritance of new life. This is the changing of the human mind, that the believer lives a new life and is conformed to the will of God, referring to God's regeneration of the heart in the believer. An inheritance that is eternally preserved, specifically designated for those believers. An inheritance of an indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is active, It is life-changing, life-altering. In the same chapter, Peter also writes the call to holiness and obedience in verses 13 through 25. There's reference to Old Testament text and the example of the nation of Israel who has been called to holiness. 
we are called under grace, under the precious blood of Christ, to holiness. Prior to reading our text, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunities this week, whether here at the church or in our daily living, for our desires to show love and serve our community, to our fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ and within our own families. We ask that the desires of our heart be driven continually to share this love of Christ in truth, word, deed, and action. We have been blessed during this time of worship, and we ask that our hearts and ears and eyes remain open and engaged to your word. We thank you, God, for the mercy you have shown to your disciples, those who have become to chosen people, our hearts being regenerated and redeemed, not from corruptible things, as Peter writes, but the, from the precious blood of Christ that was without blemish or spot. And ask, Heavenly Father, that these words from the living Bible, your living word, not mine, be emphasized on the people here listening onto their hearts. And we thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. So once again, our scriptural focus for today is going to be the first half of First Peter 2. I'll start with verse 1 and read through 12. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected, he has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim these praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter in this passage is emphasizing two main points to his readers who this is written to. First, it's the relationships of, of Jesus Christ to the believers in his metaphors or descriptive use of language as a living stone or a cornerstone. Second, believers are the chosen people under the new covenant and the relevance that that entails to these multiple descriptors, each significant, that both Jason read and I just read. The second point also includes that how a sinful world or the, I'll call them, unchosen people will not receive the cornerstone 
but reject the truth of Jesus Christ. So first, in describing the relationship of Jesus Christ to the believers in this passage, we have two illustrations. First, the living stone. Second illustration is the cornerstone. All right, because I like science. We'll start our geological classification of the word this morning, describing Jesus as the living stone in verse 4. When I typically look at a stone, and I guess I probably should have brought one. I could get one right out of the door. We used to kind of keep open to go to the dumpster over there. Um, it's inanimate. It doesn't really do much, right? It just kind of sits on the ground. A fundamental example of the exact opposite of the definition of living. The rock or stone does not speak, doesn't listen, it doesn't act or think or feel. It is an object absolutely indifferent to everything around it. It does not respond to stimuli as being picked up and thrown into a pond or any other exterior influences. This rock or stone is made out of metamorphic, sedimentary, or igneous constituents. Got my science in for the day. <laughs> to further define this point, even in the English language, we have expressions using stone as describing a person that is stone cold. No feelings, no emotions, no response. A heart of stone, very stern or cruel nature. Cast in stone, completely set, unchangeable, no flexibility. These statements are not supportive illustrations of using stone to describe vitality or life. These same characteristics of a stone would have been made during the time of Peter. We observed a rock. Guess what? 2,000 years ago, they observed a rock. And yet Peter writes a living stone. Living is defined as having vital power of life in itself and or exerting the same upon the soul. It is applied to those things which persons are compared to who possess real life, you know, the zest of life, the spark of life. Verse 4 reiterates a common, all too familiar message of men of the world rejecting the living stone, the representation of Jesus Christ, even though the living stone, as described in this passage, was chosen by God and precious. This also emphasizes the contrast of man's rejection of the Savior to remain in sin and disassociation from God, or the acceptance of God, becoming true partakers in the this, in this salvation, precious in the sight of God as prized, held in honor, reverence, and esteem. In verse 5, believers are referred to as living stones, simply put, as living, accepting, and believing the truth of the living stone of Jesus compared to not believing in the truth. Second illustration, as Peter writes, concerning the cornerstone that is mentioned in both verses 6 and 7. Uh, so I'll kind of divest. What is a cornerstone? In more modern buildings or structures, a cornerstone is more symbolic. It's very common to be seen on building corners or exterior walls. There might be a year that, it, you know, like a lot of churches I've been to in the past, they have established in 1956 or whatever the case may be, right? It's commemorating something. Uh, it could have a small inscription, but it doesn't have the historical importance once relied on. In ancient days, before, you know, if, once again, engineers, if you know what AutoCAD or GIS, Geographical Information Systems, before we had all these fancy computers to kind of lay out everything and that, you know, you can print off and bring to a work site, any construction had to begin with this cornerstone. This cornerstone was the first fundamental block 
of the construction endeavor. The single stone was considered the most important and established the proper alignment for the entire structure or even complex. And all the other stones use this very first stone as its reference. The cornerstone sustained the structure. If the cornerstone was removed, then the, st the structural integrity may not be maintained. In many cultures, the significance of the cornerstone was aligned with astronomical or astrological points. Here, the alignment of the entire st structure or complex would be set, significant in all manners. So when Peter is writing of Jesus as the chief cornerstone, this is representing the foundational first stone of the church under the new covenant, believers. Everything that Jesus built and established here on earth, everything else is built off of that. There may be many corners to a building, but there's still only one first stone that sets the alignment for everything else to follow. The kingdom of God, the church, filled with the disciples of Christ, indwelled by the Holy Spirit on earth, is built upon Jesus, who he is, what he completed during his short time on this earth, the commandments he left for his followers to obey, and the instructions he declared believers to execute. Once again, focus on Jesus. Peter had used the cornerstone example before. This is documented in Acts 4, approximately 30 years before Peter's first epistle was written. So at this time, Jews from around the world had performed a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the day of Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks. The day of Pentecost in Orthodox Judaism occurs 50 days after Passover to celebrate first fruits of the wheat harvest as one of the three feasts where the Jewish nation was set together to Jerusalem per Levitical law. So at this time, this is obviously after Jesus' uh, death and resurrection, um, we have a group of believers and uh, disciples in the upper room, followers of Christ, and according to fulfilling Jesus' promise, the Holy Spirit is provided to believers. So we have, as the Bible describes, these mainly uneducated young men, right? Fishermen, tradesmen, not followers of a Jewish rabbi, not part of the religious elite, but they had been gifted the ability to speak and understand foreign languages. A miracle was being performed. Acts describes Jews from Parthia and Mede, which are now parts of modern-day Iran, Cappadocia and Pontus, which are now modern-day Turkey, uh, Jews from Rome and other locations in Africa. And the Jews are amazed. They're even an exclamation, as identified in Acts 4, 7, 8. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying, look at one another. Look, are not all these who speak... Galileans, and how is it that we hear each in our own language which we were born? So a miracle, once again. How do these men know our languages, they're asking. Peter stands up right around the same time with the other 11 apostles and expounds confidently to the Jews in Jerusalem the gospel message of their Savior, Jesus Christ. Miracles performed, healing of a lame man, the church expands as Jews repent and become believers. Peter and John are preaching at the temple. Once again, the religious elite are not happy about this, and they are arrested for preaching and teaching of Jesus' resurrection. And in their address, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, tells the Sanhedrin, Let it be known to all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by 
you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So once again, they are preaching the truth in a hostile environment. There's a direct connection here between Acts 4 and 1 Peter chapter 2 with the reference of a chief cornerstone. Also very equivalent to Peter as what we've been discussing this morning, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 19-22. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of the dwelling where God lives by his Spirit. This passage in Ephesians brings Gentiles and Jewish Christians together under the same group. There is no discernible difference between believers and God's family. No difference between Roman and Jew or any others that may have been uh, exposed or brought in to the Christian family at that time. We are the same people. Same nation under the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Jesus uses cornerstone language as well in Matthew 21 and Mark 12, uh, and we'll discuss that later in the message. As we move from Peter's example of Jesus Christ as the living stone and the cornerstone to believers called the chosen people under the new covenant, there are several key descriptors, each elucidating important relevance of what our roles as believers encompass. In verse 5, followers of Jesus Christ are identified as little stones, continuing to use of the similar reputation as Jesus as the living stone. Notice the difference in the way that the text, living stone, living stones. As followers of Christ, we are displaying that Jesus originates and sustains all life within us and has given to us from his own life. In verses 5 and 9, the readers of this letter have, are identified as a holy priesthood, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. By extension, as disciples of Christ nearly 2,000 years after that, we also inherit these names and the identification associated with them. So kind of to dig into some of these a little bit more, a holy priesthood. Um, So last time, uh, during the last message I was up here, we kind of dug into what holiness was. And just as kind of a little recap, it's identified as being called to live in a condition of righteousness, separate from the adoration and participation in a sin-filled world, to turn away from all unrighteousness and rebellions against God. Not to crave our past life and indulgences, but to embrace righteousness. Uh, On New Year's Day, uh, we discuss the Old Covenant of the Old Testament and the New Covenant of the New Testament. And believers are under grace, not the law. The revelation of Jesus Christ supersedes the old sacrifice system to the system of grace. Hebrews 9.15 states, That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the internal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under the first covenant, meaning the Mosaic law or old covenant. Receiving this internal inheritance... Peter elucidates this once again in 1 Peter, emphasizing the inheritance is provided by God. It's the inheritance of a new life. 
the inheritance is eternally preserved for all those that believe, an inheritance of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's not a temporary endeavor or something that's short-sighted, but it's life-changing, impacting to serve God. It is not the treasures of earth, but the treasures of heaven where our heart is to be focused. As Christians, we have direct access to God and offer not external sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices. We are set free from the control of everyone but God, including Jesus Christ. Spiritual in the sense that we are filled and governed by the Holy Spirit. The next identifier is a chosen generation. Chosen to obtain salvation through Christ, through the will of a sovereign God. Partakers in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This also have references to Isaiah 43, where Israel is identified as God's chosen people. He graciously chose them from all the nations of the earth. He freed them from bondage of Egypt, provided them water in the desert, a path in the wilderness, and offered redemption to his people. God continued to show his sovereignty to Israel and that they depended on him for their salvation and survival. The next descriptor is a royal priesthood. Many similarities with a holy priesthood from verse 5, but this royal annotates regal, destined for nobility. So some differences between, once again, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. New Covenant as a royal priesthood, there's not a separate distinct priesthood caste. The disciples of Christ have a direct relationship with God and do not need an earthly intercessor or intermediary. We have Jesus Christ, our advocate, as identified in 1 John 2, 1. And it says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Also in Hebrews 10, 11 through 25, it's a lot there. I'm just going to summarize. Jesus offered one sacrifice, his death, for the payment of all sins for eternity of those called to repent. Those sanctified have God's law written into their hearts and their minds, and it says, the sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Believers are spiritually cleansed. The grime of iniquity is removed. The sin debt was paid. The chains have been released, and believers are consecrated. In 19 through 22, it says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness, holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We as believers can now approach God. If you are not familiar with this uh, passage, once again, I highly encourage a latter reading later today, later this week. Once again, that's Hebrews 10, 11 through 25. Second point is the Levitical priesthood established under Aaron were advocates for the people of Israel to God. The men, although priests, were sinners, but were unable to keep the law themselves, so therefore they were imperfect human advocates. There are examples of obedient priests, disobedient priests in the Old Testament, yet still men experiencing the sin of the flesh of this world. Jesus was the perfect high priest, the perfect advocate. He was not tainted by sin, 
whether in heaven or as a man on this earth, Jesus is described as a high priest in Hebrews 7. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints a high priest men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Jesus is the perfect high priest, something that the priest, descendants of Aaron, could never fulfill. Third point, all disciples of Christ are part of a royal priesthood. For context, John writes to believers in the seven churches in Asia in Revelation 1, 4 through 6. He says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we see this similar fashion as readers of this letter today. We are disciples of Christ and priests within the new covenant. The next identifier is his own special people, people whom God has chosen for himself. Sometimes you may see special or peculiar, depending on your version, as designated people for a special possession and function. The nation of Israel is identified as being the chosen people, decreed to be holy, separated from the surrounding nations, cultures, false gods, and the promises that God gives to Israel about the delivery of the promised land based on their obedience to God's requirements. And this is all recorded in Deuteronomy 7. But believers under grace are also again called to holiness, not to be a part of this world. With these designations as children of God, we are called to be holy. And once again, as in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, but he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Once again, not a suggestion not a kind of how you feel about it. It's the truth. That is the declared word of God. It's not an easy task. It continues to be a challenge for all believers to focus on the heavenly and not the temporal or earthly. Also, in First Peter, this passage of Scripture, we have discussed the chosen people, but there is also specific mention of so-called unchosen people, or those referred to as the stone the builders reject in verse 7, or the stone that makes people stumble and the rock that makes them fall in verse 8. This is not referencing Christians falling into sin, but the remaining people not called by God and their impending judgment. Verse 7 reiterates that believers in Jesus Christ are precious, ones who God has judged as worthy. Those that are disobedient, as in they refuse, reject, repudiate, disapprove, or withhold the belief that Jesus as their Savior are not precious. That is eye-opening to me. As one that has been selected as part of the chosen generation, a royal priesthood, God's special possession, 
undeniable that Jesus Christ is my Savior, has saved me from my sin and suffering everlasting. As nothing that I have done, am currently doing, or will ever accomplish can substitute or compare to the ultimate sacrifice which paid for the propitiations of my sins. The blood of Jesus Christ, the eternal atonement, the grace and mercy provided to me to remove damnation from my soul. Now I have the promise and encouragement of sanctification and eternity with God. I'll say that one more time. As nothing that I have done and doing or will ever do can substitute or compare to the ultimate sacrifice which paid the propitiations of my sins, the blood of Jesus Christ. The eternal atonement and grace and mercy provided to me to remove damnation for my soul. Now I have the promise and the encouragement of sanctification and eternity with God. And that is only due to the blood of Jesus Christ. How does this not glorify a sovereign God? How does this act not bring complete and utter humility? How does this not point to a God most high, worthy of all praise and honor and reverence and utter preeminence? The recognition by the chosen of who God is and what Jesus has accomplished is the distinction between the chosen and the unchosen. I'll go back to the parable in Matthew 21 and Mark 12. Jesus is in discussion with the Jewish religious elite, the Pharisees. In both Gospels, it identifies this parable. It, record, it, it records Jesus telling the parable of the landowner and the wicked vine dressers, or tenants. And in brief summary, a wealthy landowner plants a vineyard, makes a wine press, and leases his property to vine dressers tenants that are taking care of it. It was near harvest time, and the landowner sent his servants to receive the harvest. The vine dressers killed a servant, beat a second servant, and stoned a third servant. The landowner tries a second time and sends another group of servants to receive the harvest. The vine dressers perform the same violent acts on this group. The landowner sends his son, thinking that they will respect who this man is because he is my son. And what do the vine dressers do to him as well? They kill him. Their hope is on planning on taking that inheritance. The expected resolution would include the landowner coming back, kill all those people that were currently on his property, that had killed his servants, had killed his son as judgment, hire new people to work the land until the next harvest and collect the harvest. Moral of the story is that the vine dressers did not see the truth of the situation. They did not own the land, the property, the crop, the harvest, but acted with evil intent and violence to claim what was properly the landowners. The tenants were going to lose everything, including their lives, and receive their due judgment. In verse 42, Jesus states he is the cornerstone and the Pharisees are rejecting. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Pharisees were able to understand that they were the vine dressers, the tenants, and Jesus was directly speaking to them, no longer in parable. 
And he tells them in verses 43 through 45, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking to them. Jesus is informing the Pharisees the kingdom was going to be given to a number or given to another as their corruption of the religious elite and general practice of the law had been abandoned from the original system that God intended to a legalistic system based on works and not a reverent relationship dependent on God. The stone in verse 44 is again Jesus, this time as a stumbling block to the disbelieving. And the consequences are grim. Another iteration of a disobedient world system as not acknowledging the truth of who Jesus is and his relationship to God the Father under grace, under the new covenant. Believers are the new nation, God's chosen people. In verse 9, Peter writes, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As believers, we are called out of the darkness into this marvelous light. Darkness is here defined as ignorance, respecting divine things and human duties, and the accompanying ungodliness and immorality, together with their consequent misery. It's impactful, consequent misery. As we were in darkness, we did not identify what was spiritually righteous or unrighteous. We were unable to perceive or discern the differences. Believers being brought into this marvelous light, as marvelous defined as worthy of admiration, approval, admirable, excellent, and light as the saving truth embodied in Christ and by his love and effort imparted to mankind. I cannot think of a better summary as personally experiencing the saving truth that is freely provided to me as well as others that believe and have this relationship with Jesus Christ. This free gift of mercy, granting me and believers salvation by Christ. But this also includes all other favors that we have received, benefits, opportunities, that we are unworthy. Peter has now addressed the chosen God's people, the unchosen, the people rejecting the truth of Jesus Christ. But the address to believers does not end there. We are here still held responsible And in verse 12, he writes, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Our conduct with those who reject Jesus must remain honorable, noble, kind, at peace, an inward and outward countenance of purity from our hearts and our lives. Our deeds, our actions can do nothing but praise, extol, magnify, and celebrate God from this day until he returns. Peter again comments on how believers must be examples to a non-believing world, those that are suffering under affliction in 1 Peter 3, 14-16. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, 
and always be ready to give defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We are held to heavenly inspired standards. And Peter tenderly addresses the epistle readers in verse 11 and acknowledges that while still on earth, we abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The war of a sinful world is always relevant, always on the attack, and relentlessly pursuant of believers. If you don't see that, open your eyes. Verses 1 through 3 are only a small display of characteristics of sinful actions that must be laid aside. To desire the pure milk of the word. As believers, we are to grow in desire, in knowledge, in sincere application to our lives led by the Holy Spirit. God is victorious. This is written. This is promised. This is the truth. As we draw at the end, I want to provide two examples of direct impact of Jesus Christ's salvation on the character of someone who went from unchosen to chosen the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the seeking of righteousness, and being obedient to the Word of God. In the New Testament, I can't think of a better example than Paul. He identifies himself in Galatian as a persecutor of the church, where he tries to destroy the early church. He was at war against God. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law. A Pharisee is how he describes himself in Philippians. His only concern was maintaining the legalistic system established under the Mosaic law, right, for self-righteous piety and works-based salvation. The exact opposite of what Jesus teaches. But thankfully, this man met Jesus on the road to Damascus. His life was transformed absolutely. He indeed, did indeed taste the Lord that he is gracious and grew in his walk with Jesus Christ, his sanctification throughout his missionary journeys. How do we know this? In 2 Corinthians 11, he summarizes his experience. He's put in prison, whipped times without number, numerous brushes with death, 40 lashes at least five times. This man was carrying the scars of his mission wherever he went. Beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, and that's just naming a few. You read this passage and you will see the suffering that this man went through. But absolutely everything that he did, it was his dependence on God for everything. His very survival day to day. Paul paid with his life ultimately, but his impact on the kingdom of God is immense and is a living testimony to us today. Second example is a man I came to know very well after several years. Um, in his youth, he was involved with criminals, crime, led by the less of the flesh. He was involved with many, what I would say, unsavory acts driven by carnal, unredeemed nature, including drugs, alcohol, domestic abuse. In his testimony, when his heart was redeemed and saved by Jesus Christ, after his repentance of his sins, there were extreme changes in his thoughts, character, language, and conduct. 
the expectations from his associates, people at work, and his family, they didn't understand this change. But they observed the external manifestation of a man living, indwelled, and knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus was glorified. Jesus was proclaimed as this man's Savior. Jesus was given all the credit for this transformation. It was not something that he did. As I conclude this morning, Peter has identified the chosen and the unchosen. Believers as the chosen people are inheritors of Jesus Christ's gifts. Along with salvation, we are decreed to be holy, separated from our surrounding cultures, nations, worldly system. We don't have wooden idols today that we worship, but there's sure plenty of stuff on TV, things that take up our time, things that distract us from the Word of God, things that distract us from our focus on living as disciples of Jesus Christ. We know there are many needs in this church and the world around us. And I hope and I pray that in our continual walk with Jesus Christ that we will see those and we will meet those and we will be living testimonies. The center of our world is God, the Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and giving Him praise and worship. He righteously deserves. We are so thankful for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that He paid for our sins with the ever-present hope that we will be free from an eternity in darkness and marvelously be in the light forever with our Savior and Creator. If there's anyone here that does not know Jesus Christ, I ask you, come find me, come find Ken, come find Jason. We are living testimonies of what Jesus Christ has done to our world, changed our characters, changed our thoughts, changed our minds. We are still sinners. We still have to ask for repentance. But I know that if I were to drop right here, right now, I'd be in glory. Close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your time and your word this evening. I ask that the Holy Spirit be convicting hearts and minds to repentance, to encouragement, to joy, to giving you glory. We know there are many needs of this church and the world around us. We just ask that our hearts be willing to serve and that we be, once again, living examples and testimonies in our voices, our attitudes, our character, and our actions. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for being the chosen people. And we thank you that Jesus being an unfailing and eternal cornerstone. Amen.